0: This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I've just reviewed Tom McCarthy's new novel, C. Uh, normally, I only reread a book for review if I'm going to slate it, just to be absolutely sure I'm not being unfair. This was the first book that I reread almost immediately on finishing it. It's an incredibly rich, full, comic, plangent, um, it is a masterpiece of a book. He's just been longlisted for the Booker Prize, and I certainly know who I'm going to put my fiver on down at Ladbrokes. Um, he's the author of two previous novels, Remainder, which was described by Zadie Smith in a quote which I'm sure Tom is absolutely sick of hearing now as one of the great English novels of the past 10 years. He also wrote Men in Space and a brilliant non-fiction book called Tintin and the Secret of Literature. I'm sure you're going to want to welcome Tom McCarthy. I should say that I I love this venue. It's one of the more intimate ones, even though we do have the roaring noise of the traffic outside. But for a novel like Sea, it seems vaguely appropriate that there's the uh, threat of imminent whizzing technological death going round the literature the whole time. What we're going to do is Tom's going to read a bit from the book, then we'll have some questions, and then it's over to you. So Tom, please.
1: Thank you very much for that really kind introduction. And... um I look forward to reading the review <laughs> <laughs> now. <laughs> and, uh, I'll, read a, I'll read a short passage from quite early in the book. Bu- is there a reverb? Can, is it? It sounds okay, okay, it's just me. Um, I'll read a short passage from early in the book. If you listen to the radio in 1911, you don't mm-hmm. hear voices or music or whatever like now. You just get um, noise. And against that noise um, clicks, either short or long, which correspond to the dashes and dots of Morse code. And almost uh, the vast majority of radio traffic then would have been ship to shore or ship to ship. But there was also this kind of army of mainly teenage boys kind of listening in, suddenly enchanted by this kind of what Rilke calls garage, right, the crackle of the universe and messages flying around. And this is exactly what the hero Serge is doing in this passage. The statics like the sound of thinking, not of any single person thinking, nor even a group thinking collectively. It's bigger than that, wider and more direct. It's like the sound of thought itself, its hum and rush. Each night when Serge drops in on it, it recoils with a wail then rolls back in crackling waves that carry him away all rudderless until his fingers nudging at the dial can get some traction on it all, some sort of leeway. The first stretches are angry, plaintive, sad and always mute. It's not until hunched over the potentiometer among fraying cords and soldered wires His controlled breathing, an extension of the frequency of air he's riding on, he gets the first quiet clicks that words start forming. First, he jots the signals down as straight graphite lines, long ones and short ones. Then, below these, he begins to transcribe curling letters, dim and grainy, in the arc light of his desktop. He's got two masts set up. There's a 22-foot pine one topped with 15 more feet of bamboo, all bolted to an oak stump base half buried in the garden. Tent pegs circle the stump round. Steel guy guy wires, double insulated, climb from these to tether it down. On the chimney of the main house, a pole three feet long reaches the same height as the bamboo. Between the masts are strung four 18-gauge manganese copper wires threaded through oak lathe crosses. In Serge's bedroom, there's a a boxed tuning coil containing 20 feet of silk-covered platinoid, shellacked and scraped. The transmitter itself is made of standard brass, a four-inch tapper arm keeping Serge's finger a safe distance from the spark gap. The spark gap flashes blue each time he taps. It makes a spitting noise. So loud, he's had to build a silence box around the desk to isolate his little RX station from the sleeping household, or, as it becomes more obvious to him with every session, to maintain the little household's fantasy of isolation from the vast sea of transmission roaring all around it. Tonight, as on most nights, he starts out local, sweeping from 250 to 400 meters. It's the usual traffic, CQ signals from experimental wireless stations in Macedown and Ellery, tapping out their call signs and then slipping into Q code once another bug's responded. They exchange signal quality reports, compare equipment, inquire about variations in the weather and degrees of atmospheric interference. Serge moves up to 500 meters. Here are stronger, more decisive signals, Coastal stations' call signs flung from towering masts. Poldews transmitting its weather report. A few nudges away, Malin, Cleethorpes, Nordyke send out theirs. Liverpool's exchanging messages with tugboats in the Mersey. Serge transcribes a rotor of towing duties for tomorrow. Further out, the lightship tongues reporting a derelict's position. The coordinates click their way into the C C4 station, then flash out again to be acknowledged by Marconi operators of commercial liners, one after the other. The ship's names reel off in litany. Falaba, British Sun, Scania, Morea, Carmania, each name appendaged by its church, Cunard Line, Allen, Aberdeen Direct, Canadian Pacific Railway, Holland, America. The clicks peter out and Serge glances at the clock. It's half a minute before one. A few seconds later, Paris's call sign comes on, FL for Eiffel. Serge taps his fingers on the desktop to the rhythm of the huge tower's standby clicks, then holds it still and erect for the silent lull that always comes just before the time code. All the operators have gone silent. Bugs, coastal stations, boats, all waiting like him for the quarter second dots to set the air, the world, time itself back in motion as they chime the hour. They sound, and then the headphones really come to life. The press digest goes out from Niton, Poldu, Malin, Cadiz, Diario del Atlantico, Journal de l'Atlantique, Atlantic Daily News. Madero and Suarez shot in Mexico while trying to escape trade pact between entretien de shocking domestic tragedy in Beau, il fondatore, husband unable to prevent the stories blur together. Serge sees a man clutching a kitchen knife chasing a politician across parched earth, past cacti and armadillos, while ambassadors wave papers around fugitive and pursuer, negotiating terms. Grain up five, Lloyds down two, Australia all out for 421, England 62 for three in reply. Malin's got 10 private messages for Lusitania, seven for Campania, two for Olympic, Request instructions how to proceed with the honour of your company on the occasion of weighing seven and a half pounds a girl. (laughs) The operators stay on after the Marconi grams have gone through chatting to one another. Carrigan's move to President Lincoln, Borstable to Malwa. The company football team drew two all against the Evening Standard 11. Old Allsop, wireless instructor at Marconi House, is getting married on the 22nd. His tapper finger firing up her spark gap, short then long. Olympic and Campania are playing a game of chess, K4 to Q7. K4 to K5. They always start K4. Serge transcribes for a while, then lays his pencil down and lets the sequences run through the space between his ears, sounding his skull. There's a fluency to them, a rhythm that's spontaneous, as though the clicks were somehow speaking on their own and didn't need the detectors, keys, or finger-twitching men who cling to them like afterthoughts. He climbs to 600 and picks up ice reports sent out from whalers. Floberg slash Growler, 51 north, 10 degrees, 45.6 lat, 30 degrees west, 12 da, 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 long, field ice, 59 north, 42, etc. <laughs> Compagnie de Télégraphie Sans reports occasional light snow off Friesland, Paris comes on again, again the cycle pauses and restarts, then Bergen, Crookhaven, Tarifa, Malaga, Gibraltar, Serge pictures gardenias tucked behind girls' ears, red dresses and the blood of bulls. He hears news forwarded via Port Said and Rome from Abyssinia and sees an African girl strumming on some kind of mandolin, jet black breasts glowing darkly through light silk. Suez is issuing warnings of Somali raiders further down the coast. More names process by Isle of Perim, Zanzibar, Isle of Socotra, Persian Gulf. Parades of tents line themselves up for him. Inside them, dancers serving sherbet. Outside, camels saddled with rich carpets, deserts opening up beneath red skies. The air is rich tonight, still and cold, high pressure, the best time of year. He lets a fart slip from his buttocks and waits for its vapor to reach his nostrils. It, too, carries signals, odor messages from distant, unseen bowels. When it arrives, he slips the headphones off, opens the silence cabin's door to let some air in, and hears a goods train passing half a mile away. The pulsing of its carriage joins above the steel rails, carries to him cleanly. He looks down at his desk, the half-worn pencil, the light's edge across the paper sheet, the tuning box, the tapper, these things here, solid, tangible, are somehow made more present by the tinny sounds still spilling from the headphones lying beside them. The sounds present too, material. Serge sees its ripples snaking through the sky, pleats in its fabric, joins pulsing as they make their way down corridors of air and moisture, rock and metal, pine, oak and bamboo. Above 650 The clicks dissipate into a thin, pervasive noise like dust. Discharges break across this. Distant lightning, aurora borealis, meteorites. Their crashes and eruptions sound like handfuls of buckshot thrown into a tin bucket, or a bucket full of grain-rich gravy dashed against a wash boiler. Wireless ghosts come and go, moving in arpeggios that loop repeat, mutate, then disappear. Serge spends the last half hour or so of each night up here among these pitches, nestling in their contours as his head nods towards the desktop and lights flash across the inside of his eyelids, pushing them outwards from the center of his brain, so far out that the distance to their screen seems infinite. They seem to contain all distances, envelop space itself, curving around it like a patina, a mold. Once he picked up a CQD, a distress signal. It came from the Atlantic, 200 or so miles off Greenland. The Pachatea, merchant vessel of the Peruvian Steamship Company, had hit an object, maybe whaler, maybe iceberg, and was breaking up. The nearest vessel was another South American, Acania, but it was 50 miles away. Galway had picked the call up, so so had Le Havre, Malin, Poldu, and just about every ship between Southampton and New York. Fifteen minutes after Serge had locked onto the signal, half the radio bugs in Europe had tuned into it as well. The admiralty put a message out instructing amateurs to stop blocking the air. Serge ignored the order, but lost the signal beneath general interference. The atmospherics were atrocious that night. He listened to the whine and crackle, though, right through till morning, and heard, or thought he heard, among its breaks and flecks, the sound of people treading cold, black water, their hands beating small disturbances into waves that had come to bury them." I'll stop there.
0: we <clears throat> 15 minutes on the dot. As you can see, it's an absolute tour de force for a novel. Before we go on to discuss it more in depth, um, I'd like to take you back to before the publication of your first novel, Remainder, when you were involved in <coughs> what was described as a semi-fictitious, but certainly not semi-satirical uh, movement, the International Necronautical Society, where you were General Secretary?
1: That's still going strong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the idea behind it was that modern art had an inability or incapacity or lack of willingness to deal with the reality of death, and although these novels aren't necronotic novels from your manifesto, the characters are always people who are not quite alive, who are somehow don't feel that they are living to the full extent that it might be possible. Is that a fair comment?
1: Kind of. I mean, the, uh, the whole thing of the INS, the International Necronautical Society, was it was a kind of a reprise of early 20th century avant gardes because I just love that, that whole modality they have it's kafka uh-huh. right i mean yep. committees subcommittees <laughs> expulsions and or <laughs> yeah exactly i mean basically running from the futurist through to de and and then it kind of that's its historical moment and i just like that kind of as as a mode for and and there is satire and irony in it but but it's it's like duchamp taking a broken bicycle wheel if you take something that's broken mm-hmm. and redundant that's kind of interesting and And so you know we had all these we have all these committees and subcommittees and and this novel really came straight out of a project I was doing with the INS at the ICA in London where um, based on there's this brilliant movie I think the best film ever made by Cocteau called Orfe which is his Orpheus. And, yep. and it's all it revolves around radio, and, and Orpheus is tuning into the, the, the garage, the, the static, the crackle, and he picks up these incredible messages coming from a dead poet that are better than everything he's ever written. And, and Coxo got the idea from uh, the BBC transmitting to the Résistance these lines of poetry. Mm-hmm. Poetry won the war. I mean, they transmitted lines of poetry, most of which meant nothing, but one in every 1,000 meant blow up the bridge, now. Yeah. <laughs> Take out the colonel. So so the Germans are all listening in to this. It's amazing. And uh, But there's this kind of relationship between death, politics, a kind of space of occupation and resistance, aesthetics, poetry, art, and technology, the radio. And And I was doing this project at the ICA where we had a kind of James Bond-type control room transmitting messages out, and we had a radio station. It was a kind of William Burroughs thing as well, we were cutting up newspapers to produce the messages. And I was researching, kind of thinking around radio and death and, and, and all these patterns, like not just radio, but commu- communication technology, like mm-hmm. Bell had lost two brothers, and the invention of the telephone is very much tied in with this kind of protracted mourning. And every time you get a technological invention, there seems to be a dead sibling somewhere. It's, I can't explain why, but it's just a pattern that keeps on we coming back. I was just you last know.
0: night at the debate about transhumanism, where one of the leading figures in transhumanism has said he's trying to build a robotic brain to bring back his father. So you know, you right go. up to the present moment, right. it's still there, deeply embedded with this elegiac idea. Yeah.
1: Technology is a kind of space of mourning. That's what, that's what kind of interests
0: And that really me. comes across in the book. I mean, in a way, see to my mind is a kind of postmodernist investigation into what modernism was and meant. And the way that you sort of wink at the classics of 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 modernist writing. Uh, There's a scene where Serge goes to a sanatorium and you can see the
1: sort of Mm -hmm. shadow of Thomas Mann in the background. There's virtually passages from (coughs) Mann there as well. I mean it's 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 as far as you can go without being plagiarism. (laughs) That's a huge tribute to Mann that bit, yeah.
0: But you know, right the way through when you were sort of looking at these sort of fracture lines yeah. of modernism. And it ends, of course, in 1922, yeah. which is the date of the, the Wasteland, wasteland and, yeah. and Ulysses. It seemed to me that the Wasteland was kind of one of the key texts totally. It was, you know, yeah. these fragments I have shored against my ruin. ruin. Yeah. But it was absolutely bringing all yeah. these. Could you just talk a bit more no, about yeah, that, that I mean, sort of methodology in it?
1: The, the correct answer to your question is yes. <laughs> 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 I think mean, that you're absolutely right. And I mean, particularly, it seems to me the Wasteland is kind of like it's like a radio event i mean th- th- you're going through the dial voices are dropping in dropping out you do out. the police in different exactly, voices that's what it was originally going to be called and 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 you know the person who's actually made the wasteland who should be virtually co-credited as author and is in the first uh, you know, in the, in the, what do you call it, acknowledgements, is, is Pound, you know, who's who's who was doing radio, you know, he's giving these propaganda speeches mm-hmm. for the Nazis over the radio, but his madness, which you write about very eloquently in that book, oh, so as is reading on the train, which is really good. Extremely generous <laughs> and unnecessary. <laughs> but he's, uh, he, he um, it's almost like he becomes a radio. He says, I'm shot away. He's in a cage. I mean, he's almost like this conducting kind of electric thing, going schizophrenic with Sparks everywhere, and he, he famously says, I could not make it all cohere you know it 's not just about his own mind it 's about culture you know this grand gazzam thing that he's that has been his lifelong project fails spectacularly, and it 's like frag- fragments or yeah i think that seems very kind of intimately tied to to radio or, or to kind of you know radio as coherence or fragmentation
0: and in a way that 's the sort of tension that runs right the way through the book between the modern movement, which is changing the world. The world is never going to be the same after, after radio, after war, which also comes into it, after even things like the excavation of the tombs by Howard Carter, yeah. the 22. tomb of Tutankhamun. The whole novel ends um, in an Egyptian tomb, where you kind of put death and thoth and all these kind of archetypes together. And it's an absolutely fantastic scene. But why do you think there is that pool between the two things, between the idea of making something completely new and it's already broken. It's almost like it's made broken.
1: Yeah. Well, this is, this is a kind of weird thing in... You know, Ezra Pound says, make it new. And then he spends half the cantos talking with Robert Browning. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of weird. And, and, and Joyce's, you know, Finnegan's Wake is the most radical and new thing. And at the same time, it's this complete archaeology of everything back through the Anglo-Saxons. And, you know, Walter Benjamin famously says, the angel of history faces backwards, moves forwards <laughs> facing backwards. And, and this is what... Literature does too, I think, uh, and, and and kind of has to. And there's so this, this. I mean, the book ends. It's two. Th- it ends in an Egyptian tomb, but it also ends as the empire wireless chain is being set up, the pylon, which is going to transmit the future around the world. It coincides with. Um, the most regressive ancient thing and in a way i mean see it, in a way isn't actually about radio that that's a cover it, it's about writing it's more kind of that kind of derrida Jesus. thing of just the trace the inscription be that made in the air or on a palimpsest or on a and piece that of that lovely
0: scene where they can't tell the difference between the papyrus and the and the, the newspaper yeah, yeah exactly i mean, I I
1: mean everything is just you know freud has this image of i think it's in the wolfman actually he talks about egyptian he uses an archaeological metaphor of, of just all these layers overlaid like sheets. He doesn't say sheets of acetate, he should have done, but it, that's kind of what he means. And that's, and that's kind of what's going on. Hence your rather here. beautiful acetate cover. Wow, I love this cover so much. It's kind of the best thing about the book. <laughs> it's really good. It's really, I'm very happy with the cover. It's, yeah, it's just right on
0: it. You've talked in previous interviews about this being your German novel as yeah. opposed to Remainder being your French novel. And can you just talk a little bit more about the sort of, the spectre of Freud across this book?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's massive. I mean, um, the main. T- okay, so Serge is is a kind of overlay, like well, like with the acetate metaphor of of several things, um, including Alexander Bell and his dead siblings and Marconi, whose parents met on a silk farm, like Serge is doing. But I guess the main thing in there is is Sergei Pankaev, the Wolfman, um, who is this beautifully fucked up kind of neurotic who who. Um, Lost a sister and had a. V- I mean, he's amazing. His mind is like this kind of echo chamber of resonances. He spoke three languages. He's kind of like Nabokov, basically. I mean, Arda is, is almost like a <laughs> fictional version of, of the of um of the Wolfman and, and, and out of later psychoanalysts who write about the Wolfman, um, based on their reading of Freud, Nicholas Abraham and Maria Torok talk about the idea of the crypt, the idea of mourning as a, as an internal crypt so you build this space inside your, yourself that that is kind of full and empty at the same time and of course this is linked to encryption and the idea of the neurotic always speaking in code even to himself and that kind of behavior gets transmitted in kind of cryptographic form through, throughout you know way at at a, at a level much higher than that of the individual you know fact traumas can be passed down families even when the children don't know about it because of certain patterns of transmission that are kind of repeated and and reencrypted so 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 anyhow, so that's the Freud angle. But there's a whole I mean, you mentioned man and Musil and it's just that whole melancholic thing. I mean, Georg Trackle was a big I I took lots of images from him in the war section. Another kind of incest, dead sister. Why is these kind of dead sisters keep coming back and heroin and
0: you mentioned there that you actually took bits of Trakl and, and bound it into the text. And one thing I find very admirable in what you do in C and what you did in Remainder as well and in many spaces, to actually take other people's words and braid them into your own text. It's a very difficult thing, because you know all the other art forms would allow for that kind of uh, of thing. Visual art would. Music would with sampling. In literature, it's still seen as some kind of taboo, that it's still Mm. taking away from the grand idea of the romantic author from whom everything just pours. No, that that idea needs to
1: be. Chat on, you know, debunked <laughs> from a big height. It's it's crap, you know, and and that's what I admire about Eliot or William Burroughs. The just the brazenness with which they steal, you know. Bad item, bad writers imitate good writers. steal, that whole kind of mantra. I mean, William Burroughs wrote this brilliant manifesto called Les Voleur*, the thieves, and he just says, look, you know, if you find a good passage of description of jungle in Conrad, just take it, man. You know, c- background by Conrad, continuity by. You know why? why pretend <laughs> that West Side Story isn't Romeo and Juliet. Just call it Romeo and Juliet. You know, and change what you want. And 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 I suppose at a more at a more kind of conceptual level. I mean, in that passage, you know, Serge isn't an artist. He's just some kid listening in fact to the radio. It's quite important
0: that he's not an artist. It's
1: really important. Same with Remainder, It's really important that they're not artists. Yeah. but it's a kind of double move because, of course, they kind of they are. They're a marker for what the artist is. I mean, he is receiving. He's not generating. He's he's listening, he's not a transmitter, what well, he does click out, but mainly, I mean, the real aesthetic experience is, is letting the universe kind of come into him, letting language come in and course through him, and kind of remixing that. So, so in a way, what, what he's, you know, his transcripts, which I'd love to, maybe as an added extra bonus material, I should make his transcripts, <laughs> or someone else should, because it would be really interesting to see. It would probably be like a, an, a, an Eliot poem or a pound these kind of fragments. But I think that's really, that is what the artist is. I mean, it's what Heidegger says about poetry. It's, it's, it's listening first. It's a passive secondary space. You're letting the other stuff speak in you.
0: Why do you think the taboo persists though? Given th- that we can see it quite clearly in other art forms and given you've just spoken very eloquently about the important nature of that in, in contemporary writing, why does the taboo still exist? When David Shields did his Reality Hunger mm. Manifesto most of the critics yelped plagiarism. Mm, yeah,
1: I mean, I think this is a problem with with contemporary mainstream fiction that it's, it, it has not um, you know, if you look at contemporary art not only is, is, is it completely happy with, with ideas and practices of repetition and citation and stuff, but it's actually more literate than most contemporary fiction I mean, artists have read Pound and Kafka and Burroughs much more than Many novelists have have, and uh, and I just think there's a there is a regressive and conservative tendency in, in lots of um. You know, not not just the writing itself, but the kind of way it's discussed, and 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 we seem to have regressed to some very. I don't know humanist bourgeois, whatever you want to call it, idea of kind of. You know, the romantic self who exists before language, who has something to say. I mean, you know, Kafka said again and again I write in order to affirm and reaffirm that I have nothing to say, I have no message. It's not about that. And I think any writer that has something to say should be um, ignored. <laughs> the, the <laughs> well, that's, what, that's what I say. <laughs> Dear Scottish right, late Scottish historian
0: and poet Angus Calder always used to say, If you if you really want to express something about politics and write a letter to the newspaper, don't bother putting it into a novel. And it seems that most of the novels which do have a political message would tend to have a very soft liberal message. Yeah. Be nice to one another, you know and that seems to again be quite a constraining influence given how weirdly totalitarian some of these early modernists were.
1: Oh yeah, half of them were card carrying fascists and, and um think liberal culture has never managed to kind of deal with that. Either the position is we shouldn't read Esther Pound or, or Celine, Knut Hamsen, Yeats, Eliot. I mean the list is is long. Heidegger, you know, <laughs> goes on because of that. Or we should separate their kind of beautiful minds from their bad. And it's more nuanced and it's more complex than that. And and there is a moment of also, the radical left and the radical right are not that far apart. I mean, Marinetti starts out as a, as a, you know, committed communist, and in order to kind of reinvent himself as a, as a fascist, he has to change very, very little. You know, I mean, he's, he's virtually there already, kind of bizarrely. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I just think good art in any form is about radical ambiguity. It's not to say it's not political. It, ev- everything is political. Anything in the space of the polis is political. I mean, but... This goes back to Aeschylus, right? He's not telling us something. He's introducing radical ambiguity. That's why he has a second speaker, and that's why there's the chorus, and the Oresteia ends in, a, in an unresolved, unresolvable kind of debate. And, and, and you know it, it, it puts, puts metaphor and the symbolic right at the heart of the political in the form of a question a, 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 to which the only answer is another question. <laughs> in terms yeah. of the
0: technological, uh, materials in, in, in sea and you know they're, they're vast it's not just radio it's also you know flight and the first war which really used flight continually and you've said already about the, this being a kind of space of mourning in technology and it seems to strike me that, the, that one of the things that we kind of underestimate about that period is that we may look back now and mock somebody like Arthur Conan Doyle for believing in, mm. in spirits and you have a very very funny spiritualist scene in, in, in this book um, but it did seem that, at that time, anything could be possible. Suddenly you were hearing yeah. about things like that there was another planet that nobody yeah. had ever heard of, that, that time wasn't a constant like it ever had been thought of beforehand. It's that sort of radical, the old sort of de-centering vision yeah. of modernism, that somehow everything, came, everything became possible because the old order was just collapsing. Can yeah. like you talk a bit more about how, the, how that technology allowed for almost like weird beliefs to become mainstream?
1: Well, yeah, they did become mainstream. I mean, the, the, kind, of, the kind of positivist historical reason would be that like, every family had lost at least one son, brother, father, and so on. So there was a huge desire for for, you know, for communication with the dead. I mean, that, that was widespread. And people like Oliver Lodge, you know, who was a, a renowned, the, the leading physicist of the day, was a committed kind of spiritualist. But what's really interesting as well, I mean, spiritualism is actually the wrong name for it, because the more I researched into this, they're actually total materialists. They believe in that everything, they believe in matter, matter, so this table is vibrating at a frequency that makes it present to us. Uh, Your grandfather is also vibrating, but at a finer frequency. And if we just get the right equipment, we can pick him up. I mean, it was a very material and quite I mean, I mean the X-ray had already sort of shown exactly that there were things that, that we could not see, that
0: there was more things in heaven yeah, and earth than dreamt and, and of and in, in our philosophers.
1: Uh, exactly. And, and it's still, I mean, it is still held to this day. And uh, uh, yeah, it's true that. <laughs> We could we, aliens are listening to some 1920s radio show as we speak. You know, <laughs> I mean, they they go on forever. These these M A. There's a great taping bit. Taping Lost the
0: Summer Wine as we speak.
1: Yeah, one exactly for aliens. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, yeah, you know, but this, you know, there's bits in there's great bits in Ulysses where um, Bloom is at a funeral and he's imagining. He says there should be a gramophone in every grave. Every, yeah. every grave should have a. A gramophone in it. It's a great bit in Rilke as well, actually, where he ima- he sees a the, a line on a skull because he thought he'd become a medical student at one point and he gave it up, like Joyce. And anyhow, he imagines putting a needle in it and, and playing it. So this idea, the kind of materiality of reading surfaces and and the archive and the crypt and the mausoleum and the palimpsest, they're all they all go together. Um, and, and this this comes into focus in modernism, but I think it's been. It's much older. I mean, it's what the the Egyptian culture is all about as well, in a way.
0: One of the big connections between Remainder and and C is your use of repetition, your use of the same events happening again and again. In C, it seems more like a kind of Wagnerian leitmotif, that we see the same um, chains of images and chains of uh, disassociations and misassociations cropping up. With Remainder, you were far more kind of um, blatant about this book being about. Repetition on repetition, repetition yeah. and repetition. It's
1: what Marky Smith calls the three Rs: repetition, <laughs> repetition, and repetition.
0: When, when you're working in that form, what stops it becoming repetitive?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's a very good question, and and um, and for some people, it's, it is it's too much, you know. In the same way as Beckett's too much, it's like, you know, why does not you do something instead of just not do something and. What's that some critics said of Godot? It's a, it's a play in which nothing, nothing happens, happens twice, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they even reenact in the second half the nothing happening from the <laughs> first half. Um, well, you know, this this is a really good book by Raymond Queno Keno, called uh, Exercises in Style, yeah, where he takes an event cool. of a man getting onto a bus and he has to move to another seat because someone jumped or whatever, some trivial thing. And he just repeats it about 100 and whatever times, each time in a slightly different style or, you know, forensically, mathematically, lyrically, you know, backwards and and everything. And and through the repetition, you get more and more kind of intimacy with the event. So the event becomes kind of like the crucifixion. It becomes, or or landing on the moon, it's the most important event ever to happen in the world. And this may seem like quite a kind of avant-garde logic, but, you know, if you just watch the football on TV, it's the same thing. You know, you can replay from every angle, computer capture, hotspot, reverse, Hawkeye, everything there's a tendency to it's what the philosopher Alan Badiou writes about repetitively you know the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the event and, uh, and and I think repetition is is kind of yeah it, it can if we came back here tomorrow and do exactly what we're doing now it becomes kind of a lot more interesting and 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 the difference is you know and then if we come back the next day we're not just repeating today we're repeating our repetition and one it's other thing about of pl- repetition is it's totally tied in with trauma. Trauma bequeaths repetition. This is what not only Freud, but every even the kind of English psychologists that prod rats brains kind of agree on that. And it, it's exactly what Borges found when his father
0: um, told him one day to remember something, that he'd ask him the next day. And the next day he said, "You know, did you remember that thing I asked you? And Borges repeated the, the um, anecdote that he had to remember. And his father said, well, are you actually remembering it? Or are you remembering me saying, remember it? <laughs> Which yeah. Seemed to be see the point at which he became a creative writer. That kind of he went on to write
1: that story, Pierre Menard, where a guy the Quixote. W- writes Don Quixote in Nîmes in 1960, and he's adamant that this is a different book, which it is. Yeah. And and Don Quixote, anyhow, is all about repetition. He's just replaying these moments from from books, from other books, and, and getting it wrong. And constantly. again, it's about trauma. And it's totally about trauma. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: That link of repetition and trauma gets me to we'll just have a couple more questions before we open up to the floor to, to anti-psychology, which has been one of the labels that has been yeah. put on to you. I think you've been ath- rather glad to take up that oh, yeah. idea of anti-psychology. <laughs> I was chairing an event with Lydia Davis, the American she, short she story translated. writer. She
1: translated. I'm so grateful. I have <coughs> never read her work, but I am so grateful to her because she translated Blanchot and, I mean, all these French geniuses um, really well, yeah. and um, she's done an enormous, great service, and her own work sounds amazing too but sorry
0: yeah. what, what struck me about her work is that whereas the conventional Raymond Carver style short stories about two human beings who don't understand each other and her short stories are about humans that don't understand themselves and that's the feeling that I kept on getting from from both Remainder and Men in Space and Sea that at the heart of it these people did not have a clue who they actually were yeah. uh, could you just elaborate a bit about that kind of that kind of <coughs> vision, that it seems in some way quite an anti-humanist vision in a totally. soft sense.
1: It's, it's very anti-humanist. And um, yeah, I, 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 I'm against psychology. I think psychology is, is a humanist construct. Um, I'm much more interested in the type of structures and drives that are outlined by psychoanalysis, which is, has got, you know, I mean, I know they started in the same camp, but they've got absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with each other for Freud. For a psychologist, if you want to understand psychology, you take a biopsy of a murderer's brain or you study a group of people in the Big Brother house or whatever, or in an airport lounge. For Freud, you read Antigone and you read Hamlet, and, and that's so much more interesting <laughs> for me. And, and the type of structures, you know, this idea that we are not selves, we are not emoting, you know, this, this is the kind of humanist frame that, that most contemporary fiction is still in, I think you know, and that we shouldn't be because we've had modernism to kind of blow it apart. But, but I'm, I, I, I think, which is not to say though that there is not um, um, passion or emotion in, in, in an anti-humanist novel, but I think desire is operating at a much, much deeper and more um, fragmented, networked, kind of level in a much more interesting way than, than, you know, this kind of sentimental emoting. Again, as though the whole world were a big brother diary room where you just go and <laughs> stand in front of the camera and say what you f- feel, you know, all the time. I mean, you know. And politically, I think it's the kind of cultural wing of the neoliberal project. You know, Blair can oversee the most blatant contraventions of every witch law under the sun. And then he turns up in front of that committee and talks about how he felt It was the right thing to do, and they should have said, "We don't give a shit what you feel." You know, (laughs) here, here, and here, the law was broken. You're out, prison. You know, whatever. I mean, I, I, I think there's a kind of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm ranting, but, but yeah, I'm anti, anti psychology. I'm, desire is, is moves through association, and, and this is why, for Freud, the mind is kind of like, like a literary text. I mean,
0: oh, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's a great reader in that sense. Yeah, he's a but brilliant but
1: reader. Also, all his metaphors, as well, the mystic writing pad, you know, it's all about the way he, he kind of conceptualizes um, psychology crossed out, psychic action is, is as, you know, technologies of writing, wax, recording surfaces, impressions that take on traumatic, kind of surfaces that take on traumatic impressions, store them, censor them, relay them bring them back again in coded ways. This is what the literary work does at its best. And, and um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm down just with just that.
0: Do think two think? questions to, to move on from that. Slightly more personally, you know, you've always been a committed um, adherent to avant-garde ideals. How does it feel now to be on the Booker long list, which uh, <laughs> tends to be made up of novels which end in marriages, as far as I can see, or divorces nowadays? This one ends up in a marriage. so se- 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 <laughs> <Sege laughs> marriage of death dead and sisters. Writing. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of
1: the plot of Wuthering Heights, basically. It? Dig- digs up and screws his dead sisters, basically. Kind of the, it's kind of the, the, in, a, in a kind of one line nutshell. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the avant garde, this is I went to this conference on Joyce recently I was invited to talk about Joyce's legacy like now and there was a panel of three or four writers and it was called in the wake of the wake like what do you do after Finnegan's wake
0: what's post postmodernism
1: what, yeah or just what's possible it's like what Adorno said of Auschwitz you know how is poetry possible afterwards and then Paul Celan comes along and kind of says how could poetry have been possible before almost I mean but this question is very much hanging over literature and, and The Wake would be kind of that, that moment of, of absolute zero. And so, yeah, the question is, I mean, you can ignore it, and that then we're back into the kind of liberal humanist sentimental model and just pretend it never happened, or, or it happened, but we've got over it now, and we can go back to some kind of upgraded version of the 19th century. Or you kind of have to deal with it, and then how do you deal with it? How do? You, and let's use Joyce as a stand-in for the, the, the whole avant-garde in general. I mean, either you can kind of try and take it a bit further. I mean, there were people on this panel reading stuff that was kind of a bit like Finnegan's Wake, but a bit more so. If Joyce has got six channels in every sentence, they had seven. But I don't know. I mean, it's like after, after four and a half minutes of silence, the, the, t- the challenge is not to do five and a half <laughs> minutes of silence. Or after white on white, it's not to do pink on pink. I mean, it's kind of... I think that buys into this quite enlightenment idea of kind of progress. Basically, and I think that one of the geniuses of of Joyce and not just him, but you know Beckett yates, they, they all bought into Vico and his model of history as a kind of repetition loop or not not exactly a repetition loop, but like a, a spring you know a slinky dink toy that that a gyre that that not just repeats but kind of sights itself and cannibalizes itself and digs itself up and and kind of reiterates and you know kind of sustaining itself it's through endlessly living out its which own is also death and. Impossible- yeah. Totally, they're ewige they're the eternal return. Eternal and, recurrence, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think, you know, the legacy of the avant garde is, is, is kind of, yeah, the task is not to do something even more fragmented. But I mean, another thing, after Finnegan's Wait, you realize everything is code. You know, realism is a code as much as the most blatant Borosian, you know, cut up. They're all code. In fact, Burroughs would say that his cut ups are a more realistic way of describing mental life than a Jane Austen novel. You know, you walk down the street, a bus goes by, there's a bit of text on it, reminds you of association line, da da da, this is true, you know. But anyhow, I think, I think the task is not to do something more fragmented, it's somehow to kind of, this Benjamin thing again, look backwards and let everything repeat and, and kind of dialogue with everything else somehow. You know, and I I have no problems using... uh, This is finally answering... Sorry, I'm going to stop in a minute, but finally answering your question about mainstream success or whatever. I mean, I don't have any problems using the most obvious and palatable code, which is this kind of realism, which C does have and that's its mainframe. I don't have any problems with that because it's just another code. And it also works as a kind of Trojan horse. <laughs> I would not have got a, a novel made up of fragments published or distributed in this way had I gone down that route. So I suppose it's a kind of canny or a whatever. kind of viral. Yeah.
0: yeah. You've talked a lot about the, the various heroes. Who are the living heroes? Who are the people in writing nowadays who are really doing something new?
1: I, I think there's, a, there's some... I wrote a long piece in the LRB recently about Jean-Philippe Toussaint, who I think is very, very interesting. He's in Does the novel
0: script generator?
1: No, he wrote no. Uh, The Bathroom and... Yep. and uh, his latest piece is a seven-page book called The Melancholy of Zinedine Zidane, and it's all about that moment, the headbutt. <laughs> he talks about, and he was in the stadium, but he didn't see it because he was looking at the screen. It's all about mediation, and he's, he's very interesting. Um, I like lots of young Ameri- youngish Americans. Uh, Shelley Jackson, who's brilliant. If Bataille was a woman, it would be Shelley Jackson. <laughs> she wrote the, the, melanchol- no, the Melancholy of Anatomy. Um, ben Marcus. Notable American Age of Women. War and string, yeah. yeah, I didn't read that one actually. I, I must, but I, I read Notable American mm. Women. I think it's really, really amazing. Um, Jessie Ball. I don't know. I think in America people are getting away with much more. Um, what here we'd call experimental, you know, in a way that you just wouldn't get published here, not even by Serpent's Tale, let alone by Random House. Um, I think I. I don't know. I mean, th- those are in England. I, I always read. Stuart Holmes novels or his anti novels I mean they're all the same kind of endless thing but it's a very interesting conceptually really interesting His last one is called blood rights of the bourgeoisie (laughs) yes (laughs) half of it is pornographic (coughs) spams I mean it's not Nabokov right I mean there's not going to be beautiful prose but there is a, a kind of operation that's quite interesting going on there but maybe it's more at home in conceptual art
0: Stuart Holmes in Edinburgh just before this That's festival, right, his dog,
1: Mr. Dog, was doing the talking. Yeah, right? he
0: was also on stage reading his new book and putting it through a shredder simultaneously,
1: right, okay. <laughs> so he could
0: then sell the shredded remains <laughs> as a work of conceptual art and get much more money for it than the seven ninety nine that you'd get as a book sale. Let's have some questions from the floor. I'm sure there's people that want to leap in now. I know it's always oh, super. It's always brave being the first in these sections.
1: Hi, hi. Uh, being a layman, I'd like you to. Well, I'd appreciate it if you could try to clarify the difference or distance between um, uh, the tradition of psychology and humanism we have in literature and what you're talking about in terms of desire slash anti-humanism. Um, yeah, and I'm also fascinated that you mentioned Queneau, and I wonder if you're at all thinking about like combinatoric literature and what Ulipo is working on.
0: About what? Combinatorial literature, yeah. sort of Ulipo. Oh style. right, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, um Ilippo's interesting. <laughs> those uh Peric, you know, mm. Matthews, they they're very Sometimes I get a bit frustrated. It's like It's like, okay, you can write it without the letter e or with everything being double the number of words of the last thing, but I, I I don't know if that should be an end in and of itself. But it, it yeah, no, th- those guys are really kind of interesting. I mean, perhaps the distinction to be made I mean it's not like I like everything modernist and hate everything else you know I like Carver, I like Updike or the rabbit books anyhow you know I I, I like (coughs) Dickens for example but I think I think the problem is 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 in the way we understand this stuff I mean the typical line trotted out about Dickens is there is nothing modern or whatever it's about characters and people who have feelings and but if you actually go and read, like, go and read the, f- you know, the first passage of Great Expectations starts with it's like a Paul Celan poem. It starts with an s- infant stuttering tongue trying to pronounce the the Lacanian name of the father. Right, my father's name being, period, yep. and my, yep. my infant tongue could pronounce no more than, you know, it's this stutter. And then he's in a graveyard. Death. looking at the inscriptions on tombstones and there's this whole passage about the identity of things I mean it's kind of you know if he'd been I mean it's phenomenology if if we'd had Heidegger and and stuff in the in the 19th century it would have been called a phenomenological novel and probably not published (laughs) 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 so I, I think it's a lot of it is just about how how we actually understand what is going on in a novel and and Maybe the reason that I'm really drawn to most modernist stuff is because most of those writers, they get it right, right? (laughs) They understand first there are networks, first there is language, first there is technology, and then there is subjectivity, kind of in the same way as for Serge, first the static, and then there is, you know, a message, perhaps temporarily. But I think even in something like Dickens, that's already going on, he just doesn't know it yet. He hasn't got the f- critical frameworks to articulate it like that.
0: Do you want to pick up just as well on the first point about psychology and humanism and, and, and its difference to Freudian psych- psychiatry and anti-humanism?
1: I mean, yeah, if you look at, you know, the impact of Freud in psychology has been... Less than zero. I mean, they have expelled him, like like the Platonic Republic, expelling the poets, basically. <laughs> I mean, they have just they say, well, everything's discredited. He made he can't prove any of it. He made it all up. Let's go back to whatever, you know. And and yet, it's had an enormous impact in arts, in the arts, in in visual arts, and philosophy, and and literature, and. Um, so I think there's been a, you know, I, I'd say the, the two cultures now after snow are not science and art anymore. Not after Ballard or Gravity's Rainbow or whatever. They, they've perfectly aligned. You know, the two cultures would be, for me, would be humanism and, well, anti-humanism, I guess. You know, they, they, they've come from the same crucible and gone in totally, totally different directions. Is there another question from
0: the audience? Uh, we'll go here first and then to Mary at the front. Hi Tom. Um,
1: Hi. I recently read Remainder, and amongst other things, I enjoyed the, the comic aspect of it. I think you've mentioned Derrida, Nabokov back at uh, Pension. Um, just wondering, how important is comedy in your writing? Very. I mean, yeah. The first thing. I mean, I suppose with, with Remainder, the, the, the whole premise of Remainder is this guy repeats things endlessly, and he has lots of money, so he pays other people to do stuff and says you're not doing it right do it again do it the same but a bit different or at the same speed but take longer doing it <laughs> and i mean there's I, I suppose there's endless kind of potential for comedy in that after actually after writing remainder i read bergson on comedy and and um for him comedy is all about repetition it's about um it's a, an automatic critique of authenticity so so when you get repetition or duplication it, it makes authenticity impossible. You can't be unique and authentic if there's two of you. One of you's got to be fake, right? And Baudelaire writes about this as well in, in an essay on comedy. He talks about dédoublement, like doubling. And and he says, you know, comedy consists, there have to be two positions, one guy who trips and another guy that laughs at him. and And only the artist or philosopher or poet can embody both, can be the one who trips and the one who laughs. And that's a kind of elevated position but it's also a, a, a doomed one because you can never once you're split in two you can never be authentic again so so comedy would be so if you look at Beckett I mean there's nothing, I mean it's really funny but in a way it's so dark I mean they try and in Godot they try and hang themselves so that they'll get a hard on and then they realise they can't even hang themselves because their trousers would fall down and they'd look ridiculous. <laughs> you know. I mean it's like Wiley Coyote gets blown up again and again and again. And in the tragic tradition, you know, the tragic hero can throw himself or herself into death and be absolutely authentic and, and transcend. Whereas in comedy it's even more tragic because you can't even die properly, you know. Wily coyote, even if he falls off a cliff, you c- and this is the Beckett thing as well. So, yeah. So anyhow, comedy is. is I, I, this is a long answer. It's funny. I mean, I like it. It's funny. <laughs> a book that's funny is more fun to write and to read than one that's not funny. This, this is the is the real answer. Sorry, I didn't need to say all that stuff. <laughs>
0: if you just wait for the microphone. Yeah, um, I, I think. Oh, I think I can broadly agree with your critique of humanism, um, but the problem of uh, the phrase anti-humanism is that it has such negative connotations, yeah. and also, you know, linked to fascism <laughs> as the other thing. So, uh, so I wonder how that problem can be resolved. That's
1: why I hesitated with using that term. I don't know if there's a there's a there's a term. Yeah, anti anti doesn't seem right, does it? I I wonder what the kind of. Um, it's like
0: the problem with atheism yeah. being construed as yeah. the absence of of a god yeah. that we don't actually believe in. Instead any of
1: the presence of a void. Yes, good <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <Because> voidism. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's it's a good. I mean, the fa- yeah, the fascism thing is, is kind of interesting. I mean, especially with with this book, you know, lots of the people that that I was plugging into, uh, as we mentioned earlier, were kind of at one point or another card carrying fascists you know, but then there's an ambiguity about that. I mean, Marinetti is so subversive, you know, even in his celebration of militarism, it's much, much more, and the level of irony and humor and play in that is, you know, is 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 kind of difficult to gauge, and, and um, it's an odd situation though, isn't it? We have an odd situation now where, you know, we read Wilfred Owen in the school syllabus, and yet, Bomb Middle Eastern countries into the Stone Age. There's a kind of I don't think liberal humanism has any high ground morally to claim, which is not to say that fascism is great either. Of course,
0: <laughs> yet it was always part of the educational program. I remember being taught Wilfred Owen at school, and we were taught, you know, this is to make you better people. And at the time, I'd never thought of invading uh, France, and I don't think the thought ever came back to me afterwards. <laughs> it seemed a peculiarly Out of time thing to be doing. Saying, "Okay, you know, little kids in Galashields S2 never invade France. You know, (laughs) this is a really bad thing to do. It just seems. I mean, I think that gets back to the the, the comedy. There's an inherent absurdity in a lot of this.
1: Yeah, agree. Yeah,
0: I think we can squeeze in one more question. Gentleman, just behind you there. I I was thinking of um, the classic definition of mourning in Freud of remembering, repeating, and working yeah. through, and I think you've illustrated beautifully and having read C, it emerges in C constantly, The remembering, repeating, and codes commenting on each other and so on, but what about the working through bit, which seems almost functional,
1: yeah. uh, I, I, you know, is that is that too in art, uh, does art yeah. seek to work through something? I, I think that's a, a really, really good question, and, and the answer is no, I mean, to the final bit, right, I mean art is not, despite what the allender bottoms of this world say, the art is not about curing us or making us feel better, or, or, or good art isn't anyhow, you know, and, and um, when I was writing Remainder, which is all about trauma and repetition, I was reading a lot of stuff about trauma, not just Freud, but you know, Vietnam vets, car crash survivors, and so on, and the type of books you find on a first search about this is always about how to survive, how to overcome, which obviously is what the victims need. But I was in this odd position of kind of going, no, I, I don't want to overcome it. I like it, you know, like Zizek, you know, when I'm, I'm on the side of the symptom. Art is on the side of the symptom, not the cure. That's the vital thing. And so with <coughs> Serge, as for the um, hero or anti-hero of Remainder, he, he's enacting the symptom, escalating it more and more and more till the symptom almost becomes a work of art. It's what Louise Bourgeois says about her work as well. Thank God I was never... It's what Lacan said about Joyce. That he, he's the classic case of the, um, of the psychotic that, that never um, accepted to be analysed. And, and thank God, says Lacan, that he, that he didn't. <laughs> We're just
0: about out of time. Tom will be signing copies of C and... And his previous novels just in the bookshop over on the other side of the square um, it is an astonishing piece of work this book crams in so much from from egypt to the war to spiritualism or materialism <laughs> to silkworms to how to communicate with the deaf it's, a, it's an absolute masterpiece it is also very funny and i did choke up towards the end of it Please buy a copy of it and please thank the wonderful Tom McCarthy. Thank you
1: for coming. Thanks for having me here.
0: Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.